This week, if you are not yet in a small group, there are grow booklets over here. If their name and picture is in the small group booklet and there's a page or so just for Gloucester groups, if you want one that's right here, uh, they are expecting a phone call, all right? So you won't surprise them or anything like that. And uh, we would really love to see you in a small group. We'll talk about that a little bit more here in a little bit. So we are beginning a new series of studies uh, as we move into this small group season, which will run, including today, for the next seven weeks, today and six more weeks. So we'll be on through uh, October and into November uh, before we finish this particular series, and it is called CORE. We're going to be talking about our core values. Now, I know some of you are thinking there are only four of them up here. How can it take six more weeks? That's because a preacher put this together, and we could make this eight weeks if we really wanted to, right? Uh, but no, there's a lot of information that you need to know. And if you were here last week, you saw a video from Pastor Sean that talked about the fact that you can, you can be at Coastal, you can kind of get the general idea of Coastal and not really understand what's really at the heart of what we do and why we do it. So these next six weeks are going to be that. I know a lot of you are actually fairly new to Coastal. And uh, so this will be a great opportunity for you to kind of find out what really drives us, what, what makes us, what causes us to make decisions, all right? Because there's always a, excuse me, there's always an opportunity to say, you know, I'm not sure I agree with this or I agree with that. And sometimes that happens. I want you to know that these kind of things are behind the decision-making process. It isn't that we're always sitting around saying, okay, how does this decision affect authenticity? But these values that are part of who we are uh, drive what we do and the decisions we make. So I think having a clear understanding of all of these things will be super helpful to you, and they're certainly all biblical, and we're going to explore that together. But I want to back up one more time and do kind of an interim and an introduction to this uh, series that's the first part of it. And it's called, well, just simply this question, how do we make disciples? Last week, I talked about discipleship, the call for discipleship, which is intense in the scripture, right? I, I quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a, uh, in a uh, book entitled The Cost of Discipleship. He said, when God calls a man, he calls him to come and die. Uh, the cost of discipleship is significant, and Jesus gave illustrations as to what an intense uh, commitment it is when we say, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. How do we accomplish that at Coastal? My three points are three words that if you've been around Coastal for more than probably a month, you've heard them at least once because we talk about them all the time. What are the three things we do? So those of you who've been here a while, what are the three things we do? This is a pop quiz, okay? To make disciples, we connect to God in corporate worship, and we'll, don't, you don't have to skip through the rest because we'll come to them. Secondly, we grow in small groups and spiritual formation. Now, that one was a little quieter. How about number three? Serve in a ministry and a mission, okay? That's how we make disciples. It's not the only way in the world to make disciples. Not every church uses that exact process. There's some similar thing to it. But those are the three things we do that we believe, if you will follow that pattern, it will help you to grow as an authentic follower of Jesus Christ, which is what we say is our goal, right? We exist to develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ. We do that 
by having you connect to God in corporate worship, grow in small groups and spiritual formation, and serve in a ministry and a mission. I'll parse those out a little bit as we go. Okay, let me have a word of prayer with you. Father, thank you for today. Thank you. I thank you for Coastal. I thank you for the opportunity to be part of a church that's serious about making disciples, that we're not just here to meet on Sundays. We're not just here to uh, hear some great music and hear somebody talk a little and head home. We're here because we want to be a staging area to prepare people to step out into the uh, daily activities of life uh, as better and stronger disciples that are that are more authentic in their relationship with you. So I pray that today would help us in that process and that you'd be pleased with what happens now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We connect to God through corporate worship. You can find your way if you want to... Uh, Acts chapter 2. No, go to 2 Timothy 3. I'll be there in just a minute. Because it's a really important couple of verses that I did not give to the people on the slide, and so I'm going to need you to read it. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We connect to God through corporate worship. I don't know how to emphasize this sufficiently. I'm glad this is the first one on the list. It's logical that it's the first one on the list because... It's not uncommon that a person's first real experience with a church is in a worship service. Now, I know by the time people come to a worship service, they've already checked us out online or they've gotten their handy-dandy app already downloaded or something, and they're, they've checked us out pretty thoroughly. They've listened to messages or watched them, and uh, they know what they're getting into a little bit, but... Still, this is one of the first places they come when they want to say, hey, I'm going to check this church out. They'll come to a church service. We, we acknowledge that that's true, and that's why at Coastal, we try to make our services pretty accessible. We try to be careful not to use a lot of jargon that would perhaps be unfamiliar to somebody who's not been around church for a while. Uh, we try uh, to... Uh, just have a, a pretty relaxed atmosphere. In fact, I have, I've had people that I've been, uh, invited to church that have said, do I need to wear a suit? And I know what kind of background they're coming from when I say that. I, I always tell them, well, you can, but you're going to look a little out of place because nobody else does. And they're always like, oh, really? So it, those kind of things are not, we're not trying to attract everybody in the world. I look at many of the things we do as the gospel has its own inherent boundaries, right? I mean, the gospel's offensive. Pastor Sean always said, if you're a follower of Christ, you believe some really weird things, like a dead person came back to life and all sorts of things that people in the world are going to look at us and say, seriously? So there is an inherent offensiveness. The gospel says, if you don't trust in Jesus as your Savior, you're going to spend forever, eternity, separated from God in a place called hell. That is like a super offensive thing, right? So there is some sense in which the gospel has barriers around it already. Our goal here in corporate worship is to take away as many of the other barriers that we tend to set up so that people can get to the important barriers and really have to negotiate those, okay? So that's when we do some of those things, that's what we do. So the experience of worship is, in, first of all, it's an entrance into the body, Secondly, it is a sense of a joint experience, right? That's why we call it corporate worship. 
almost, probably not every week, certainly, certainly not every week, probably almost every month, I have a conversation with somebody and I hear something on the order of, yeah, but I can worship God in, and they list it on their boat, in nature, you know, at home, watching TV or whatever. And I, my response has come to be, well, of course you can, but you can't do corporate worship by yourself. It doesn't even make sense, right? It's corporate worship, and there's something unique about the people of God coming together. And we have this sense of the body. There are lots of excuses to not attend corporate worship. Some of them are, I don't even think that's biblical. I think churches ought to worship in houses. There's a whole movement, and, and the people who are very close to me are part of it, that say they're a, they call it a house church. And so there's a small, and I tell them, but you're still assembling together, right, at that house. Even if there's only eight or ten of you, you're coming together to worship. Because there is something unique about corporate worship. In the scripture, they sang together, they prayed they gave together corporately. They read scripture. They were taught from the scriptures. All of those elements took place in worship in the early church. All of those elements take place here. So people sometimes will fuss at me and, and say, yeah, but I just don't think that big churches are the right way to do it. And, and honestly, my response is that's just a matter of, of size, right? Whether you have 10 or 100 or 1,000 we're talking degrees. There are advantages to a small church. There is a sense of family in a small church that you don't always have in a larger church. But at the same time, Coastal just gave $6,000 to relief from a hurricane in the Bahamas. There aren't very many small group-sized churches that are going to be able to come up with those kind of resources to give to a, an effort like that. So there are advantages and disadvantages, but one is not inherently more biblical than the other. There is an awareness of the body. The scripture uses the picture of a body to talk about the church, the local church in particular. You don't get that sense when you're independent of each other, right? So corporate worship gives us a chance to have shared experiences. And corporate worship is where we give our primary emphasis to teaching the Bible. We just finished this past summer a, whole, a series going through the, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the second one that he wrote. Second Corinthians spent all summer long, in fact, from last May till just about September. So it was a lengthy uh, exposition of a book of the Bible. We do those kind of things regularly. And even when we're not going through a book of the Bible, we're teaching from the Scriptures, because we are convinced that this is where we get the information we need to take with us into the week. And it becomes the foundation, especially in our, in our particular small group seasons in the fall and in the spring, of the discussion you'll have in your small group. So you come, you hear the Word of God preached, you, you allow God to take it and massage your heart and change what needs to be changed, and you go to your small group and interact with each other about it. It's really, really important. But why specifically? I want to give you a couple of thoughts that are, that are scriptural. Oh, so anyway, I told you to turn to 2 Timothy 3, didn't I? So let's go there. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. These are verses that tell us where the scriptures came from, and it's why Coastal is so insistent 
that this is what we need to pay attention to. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That, with the purpose that, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We believe in what people commonly call the sufficiency of Scripture. That's why we preach from the Bible. It is, it is sufficient for us to be equipped for every good work. It makes us complete. It's why we teach the Bible. It came for, from God, and it's good to teach us. It's good to call us out when we're doing wrong. It's good to help correct us and get us on the right path, and it's good for training in how to stay on the right path. It's sufficient. So we connect to God through corporate worship. We have the experience of it, and there is the call for it in the scriptures. All the way back to the creation account. You remember uh, when God created everything, in six days he created them, and then what did he do on day seven? He rested. Was that because God was tired from creating everything? No, it was because he was establishing a rhythm and a principle of taking this one day out of the week to rest, to give our attention to the things of God. We need this rhythm in our lives it's called the Sabbath principle. Even in the Old Testament, when the Israelites were traveling and wandering in the wilderness and God was providing the manna one day at a time, they'd get enough food for that day, and then they'd have to go get enough for the next day and the next day. And then when it came to Friday, the day prior to the Sabbath, God gave them two days' worth and said, I don't want you collecting food on the Sabbath. I want that day to be special, unique, reserved. I don't want it to be like every other day. And so they got two days worth on Friday. And if they didn't get enough, they didn't have anything on Saturday to go pick up. And if they tried to get too much and store it up ahead of time, it got nasty and moldy and wormy. One day at a time, but don't take any on the Sabbath because the Sabbath, that weekly time, was to be unique and set apart from the other days. And it has been the pattern of the church from its earliest days. Acts chapter 2, let me read for you verse 46. This is what was happening in the earliest days of the church. It says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. From the earliest days of the church, there was this awareness that we need to come together and we need to come into smaller segments in our homes. It has been in the church from the earliest times. 1 Corinthians 16, to this incredibly troubled church, Paul is writing about giving, and he says to them, Concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Now, why on the first day of the week? Why couldn't they store it up on, I don't know, Thursday? Why not pick any old day? Because there was something unique happening historically. 
the church began to meet commonly on the first day of the week in honor of the fact that Jesus came back to life on the first day of the week, and it became known as the Lord's Day. From the earliest days of church history, they did that. And it was so important that the writer to the Hebrews said to them in Hebrews 10, 25, do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. And all the more, don't neglect coming together and in fact, do it more often as you see the day approaching. As you sense the return of Christ coming, get together. Can I just say simply, attending a small group is not corporate worship. It's a small group. We designed them differently with different purposes in mind. So the first thing we will tell you if you want to grow as an authentic follower of Christ is be in church. Now, this next statement is not from the Bible, so if you want to put up some red flags, you go right ahead. But I have heard too many times of late, uh, I think it was in a Barna poll, and I've told you this before, that regular church attendance is now considered to be once, maybe twice a month, and that's regular church attendance. That's only regular because, well, it, you know, if you do something once a month, I guess that's regular. But that's not going to help you grow as an authentic follower of Jesus Christ. I am convinced you need to be faithful, not just regular, okay? Faithful church attendance. That means when I was a kid, I know, I know, here we go, here's the old guy. But when I was a kid, if I was too sick to go to school, my parents said, okay, have the day in bed. And if by one o'clock I felt better, they said, oh, sorry, you were sick. You're too sick to go to school. You needed to be in school, so you're going to stay in bed. I learned pretty quickly that unless I was really sick, I, I might as well just go to school because it isn't going to be any more fun at home. I think we ought to take that attitude toward being in corporate worship. I know it's a gorgeous day today. Can I admit something? And this, this is being recorded, so I'm just being authentic here. There's a part of me that would rather be fishing right now. I mean, it's amazing out there, right? But corporate worship is important, not just to my job. If I were not the pastor, I'd be here in corporate worship today. It is important for us to be in corporate worship faithfully. Okay. See, that's why four core values can take six weeks. All right, number two. So we, we, we connect to God in corporate worship. We grow in community through small groups and spiritual formation. Why do we emphasize small groups? Listen, discipleship is always doing life together. Jesus had disciples. And what did they do? They spent time with him. He spent time with them more than he did with any other people, any other group of people, any other individual people. He spent more time with the disciples. They spent days together. They ate together. They interacted with each other. There was something unique about that group of people. You want to know why we say, you know, 10 or 12 people is a great size for a small group? Well, Jesus had 12. Why shouldn't we figure that's a good number? I don't know. There's no official number that says you got to have this many. If you have six, 
great. If you have 15, great. If you have 20, let's make two groups out of that. Because small groups are so incredibly important. They were important to Jesus. It's how he discipled those men. Why shouldn't we? Fellowship is about having things in common. Now, we can have opportunities like we do through Coastal to provide food for people who are struggling and people who are in need, and we have benevolence uh, assistance available and things like that. But isn't it better? I mean, you didn't know we have our own like local celebrity, right? Lydia, that's her second video in just a couple of months. Um, I mean, I, I need her to do small group PR, right? But she's right. Everything she said about small groups is what makes small groups so good. And you notice she didn't talk mostly about what she learned in her small group. She talked mostly about the relationships that she built in her small group. We have... 70, 60 people in here. I don't know how many are in the room this morning. Um, that's a pretty big group of people, even at that, even in a small room like this, to be able to get to know each other and really get into each other's lives. We share our hearts in small groups. We share our lives. We even share our stuff. We even share meals. Philippians chapter 2 is a a great passage of scripture that talk about, talks about some of the great value of what small groups can accomplish for you. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's something that you have difficulty doing in a large group, in a corporate setting. But getting invested in the life of somebody else so that we can get close enough to have one mind. And you notice it didn't say agree on everything, right? We, we're not going to agree on everything. If we agreed on everything in the relationships that we have, one of us would be irrelevant and unnecessary, right? That's kind of the point. We have differences, but we learn how to treat them because we have a, a mindset that is the same. We have goals that are the same. We have desires for the things of God that are the same. And you can't practically find ways to put somebody else first in corporate worship. I mean, I guess you can hold the door for them and let them walk in first, but right? I mean, really, in the, in the practical outworkings of life, it is in small group relationships that you get to work these things out. The Bible talks about the, the one another's love one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, and so on. Those things happen in the context of small groups. It's why they are so important to us. People come to me for counseling. One of the first questions I ask is, what small group are you in? And not uncommonly, well, I really haven't found one yet. And I'm telling you, the rest of the pastors at Coastal will tell you the same thing. It's, it is so important to us that People be connected in small groups with other people. So what's the value of it? Why, why do we emphasize it so much? I mean, that's kind of that's what they look like, but what's the value? 
Interaction about the Bible makes it stick. That's the first value of a small group. We don't have the kind of environment in our worship services other than, you know, the occasional ribbing from the crowd where there's interaction, right? I mean, if I say something moderately funny, you're kind enough to chuckle, and that's nice, but I don't, we don't answer and ask questions, right? We don't, we don't interact in that way. When you interact about the Bible, when you jot down a note uh, on, your, on your app, because you can take notes. Am I, am I doing good? I hope Bethany hears that part of my sermon today because it's recorded. Um, you take notes and you, you jot something down and you say, wait a minute, he said such and such. I'm not sure I understand or I'm not sure I agree. So you go to your small group and you say, can we talk about that? And you talk about that. It's one of the great values. We interact about the Bible. Acts chapter 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread and prayer and so on. And then they met together in the temple, and then they were going from house to house. There was this constant sense of big and small, and big and small. The value of small groups is found in there is interaction about the Bible. Secondly, accountability keeps me on track talked with a good friend of mine the other day who found himself trapped in something a few years ago, and he said to me, we weren't part of a small group. I didn't have accountability built into my life, and he's making sure that he does now. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but Woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who's alone, two will withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Being together helps me maintain accountability. It helps me be honest with people. It gives me a chance to get connected to people sufficiently that I can tell them, man, I'm struggling with such and such or this or that. We can be honest with each other in an environment and in a context where grace abounds, right? We can, we, we can call out our sins, preferably on ourselves, and then we can lavish it and, and wash it with grace and watch God change people's lives. Accountability is really important. Ministry is easier and more effective together. Philippians chapter 1 verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that, uh, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of, of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The Philippian church was one of Paul's favorites. I know you're not even allowed to play favorites, but they just were. There was something unique about this church that had an intense commitment to Paul and to his missionary ministry. And he said to them, I need you guys to be striving side by side. Ministry is more effective, and honestly, it's more fun when we do it together. Paul had companions. You know, if we look at a guy like the Apostle Paul, I'm going to give you a just a bunch of passages and jot them down and look at them later, make sure I'm telling you the truth. Because, uh, I mean, I am, but, you know, check up on me, that's okay. Um, 
Paul traveled with companions. Paul is like Mr. Pioneer, right? If I wanted to, to say, I need, to, I need a missionary to go to some place and start planting churches, I'd be wanting to call a guy like Paul. But he always had team members. He began with Barnabas, Acts chapter 13, the first few verses. They went out together. He served with Silas, Acts chapter 15 talks about that. He, after having led Timothy to Christ, he came back through where Timothy was from, and he then grabbed him and took him along and said, now I'm going to take this guy, and had a a mentoring relationship, but served together with him. Luke, Dr. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and uh, wrote the book of Acts that chronicles Paul's travels, uh, of course, traveled with him. And Titus, Titus was also another of the guys who was part of Paul's team. Paul virtually never traveled alone. He always had other people traveling with him. There was a sense of team in ministry. And then the last one, shepherding care is better when it happens organically rather than professionally. Now, listen, I, it is part of my job, if you will, to visit people when they're in hard times. Somebody shows up at the hospital, I do my best to get there and visit them, or, or Nate does. We, we try to make sure that somebody representing Coastal gets there. We have Pastor Wilson Beaver, who will be here again in a couple of weeks to preach, is our care pastor. It's his job, among other things, to make sure that when somebody's at the hospital, he gets there or he makes sure somebody gets there because we want that to happen. But isn't it better... When somebody from your small group shows up, I tell you, I remember one of my very first experiences with Coastal was in a small group. We were attending kind of sporadically because I was preaching on weekends at other places, and, and, uh, but we got connected to a small group, and next thing we know, our son, uh, Mitch, who's always here with us, many of you know him, was having major back surgery. He had scoliosis so bad they told us he'd be in a wheelchair if he didn't have the surgery. And so a couple of years running, we had some really deep waters with him. And in that experience, our small group, during one of our occasions when we were at CHKD, while we were waiting during a a process of him just kind of recovering from surgery, called us and said, hey, can we bring pizza? So they drove from up in Yorktown, down to Norfolk, brought pizza, and we sat around and talked. I know who our small group leaders were at the time, uh, and I know they were there, but I don't remember who else from our small group came, and I have no idea what we talked about, but I, I remember deeply the experience of having my small group members come and show up and bring pizza to us while we're in the hospital with our son. There was something very powerful to me about people who came because they just wanted to come because they cared enough about us to show up. That's what small groups do. It provides shepherding care. So we connect to God through corporate worship. We, we grow in small groups and spiritual formation, and I don't have time to go on and talk about spiritual formation, but I will tell you this. This January, during spiritual formation season, we're going to have a marriage thing here. So you know, if your marriage is perfect, you can ignore that. Everybody else, let's go. Um, serve in a ministry and a mission. Because it's really important that we come together and we worship God, and it is really incredibly important that we get connected in a small group. People who are connected in small groups 
rarely leave churches. There is something about the the immediate personal connection that gives you a reason to stay when you could drift off otherwise. But it is also really important that we serve. Because those other two, connecting to God in corporate worship is something that that kind of happens to me and for me, and I can participate in the worship service, and I can participate in ministering to others, but service is really about me taking what God has given to me in corporate worship, taking what has uh, come to me in the ministry of my small group, and allowing me now to be completely outwardly focused. I want to talk kind of quickly here because some of these passages, if you've been around the family of God a while, uh, are going to be familiar to you. And if you have not, uh, they're going to take a lot more to talk about than what I have in the next 10 minutes or so. But uh, I want you to start with these verses, Matthew 25, 14, and 15, which say this, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants to himself and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. This is a parable Jesus told about the gifts that God gives us to serve. And the word talents is not talents as in our team up here is very talented. That's not the kind of talent. The talent was an amount of money. And the steward, the master rather, gave these gifts of of a talent, a measure of money, to one a large measure, five talents, to another one two, to another one one. In this case, it was in accordance with their ability. The master knew what they would be able to do well with. In other accounts, when Jesus is telling this kind of story, he he says it is simply because the master wanted it to be that way. But the gifts are God's to give. And the The story is to let people know that God gives to us giftedness. He enables us to serve him, and he expects us to do it, and here's what it looks like. So the gifts in Matthew 25 were the masters to begin with, and he gave them to be under someone else's care. They weren't just given randomly so they could have them. They were given with the assumption that they would be used and increased in value. The second thing is God determines how to distribute them. 1 Corinthians 12 makes the specific statement that God gives us gifts to his children just as he determines. But the third thing, and if we had time to go through Matthew 25, this would be interesting, but bottom line, he expects an investment. When they came back, when the master came back from his journey, he called these three people to him and he said, okay, time time to settle up. And the one who had been given five talents came back and said, I have your five and I've made five more. I've doubled the investment. And the one with two said, I've doubled the investment too. I gave you two more back. And the one who had one said, eh, I was afraid I'd lose it and I know you're pretty harsh, so I just, here's your one back. And the, the one who got in trouble was the one who did nothing. He didn't even lose that amount of money. He just did nothing. He didn't use what the master gave him. We will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, which I believe for believers is going to be a reckoning for this. What have you done with what I entrusted to you? 
the provision of the gifts. The gifts that are given, and this is why I really had to go fast, because we could talk about this a long time. They are various. 1 Corinthians 12, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities of the same God who empowers them all in everyone. There are varieties. <coughs> Excuse me. There's not, there's not a single exhaustive list. There are a variety of lists. Romans 12, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about some of them. There are places where you see a listing of gifts. If you want to know more about this, listen, put that on a connect card, drop it in the plate, and we will make sure somebody connects with you to help you learn about this. There are spiritual gifts that relate to ministering and teaching and giving and showing mercy. Some of these gifts are gifts we are, uh, people are given that are in an unusual measure. Others are gifts that are given to some people in unusual measure, but we are all responsible to do those things, like giving. You know, don't, when the offering basket comes by, don't say, well, I just don't have the gift of giving, so you know, I'll leave that to somebody who does. We are all responsible to give faithfully, regularly, systematically, generously. We've talked about that before. But there are some people who, they get a rush out of giving. Uh, there's something in them that is a, almost a compulsion to give. That's a spiritual gift. They are not talents. I can do uh, carpentry, but that's not a spiritual gift. I can use it if I have the gift of mercy to minister to somebody else. I can use that talent, and those kind of things get connected, but there are spiritual gifts. But here's what I really like. First, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, they are for the common good. Uh, I should turn there, shouldn't I? 1 Corinthians 12, 7. I want to just read it to you. They are not given so you can enjoy them. They are given to you so you can share them. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. If God has given you the spiritual gift of mercy or of administration or of teaching or of shepherding and uh, compassion and some of these other things, God has given them to you for the common good. They are not for your benefit. They are for the benefit of the church into which you have been placed. None of us is as talented or capable as all of us because God has designed the body to work that way. So we serve and we exercise the gifts with complete diligence. Back in Matthew chapter 25, right? These guys, one got five, one got two. They both doubled it. The point was faithfulness. The point was not, oh man, he came up with 10 and you only came up with four. It was diligence and faithfulness with what we've been given. First Peter chapter 4 verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. God anticipates we will use this giftedness to serve him. And we do it wholeheartedly. Colossians 3.22 tells us to do these things as unto the Lord. And in dependence. Not independence, but we do it in dependence on each other. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm not going to take time to go through it. It's a really interesting picture though. 
uh, of the body and how uh, some have these gifts and some have other gifts. And it said, imagine, so we're allowed, right? Imagine if the whole body was an ear, where would be the seeing? Imagine if the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? So go ahead and imagine that. Imagine that your body was just one big eye. What's his name on Monsters, Inc.? I got my eye on you, he says, right? Because he's just an eye. Well, that doesn't do any good. How do you hear? How do you serve? How? The point of the passage of 1 Corinthians 12 is there are varieties of gifts, and we all have a place to serve. Everybody has to be engaged. And so we ask that you serve in a ministry, and ministries are what happen within the walls of coastal, and in mission. We have missions that reach outside of our walls. Just mentioned our foster care ministry last week. That's specific to here. But we have other ministries. People from other campuses may become active and involved in that ministry, and you can certainly involve yourself in other ministries that Coastal has that are local mission opportunities around in our area. And we want you to go on a missions trip. Get out of where we are and go someplace else that's different and spend a week or however long the trip is investing yourself in the lives of people you don't know, have never met, and may never see again. And watch what God does in your heart and life in that process. It's an incredible thing. I would love to have you be part of that. And we'll be talking before long into the first of the year, we'll be talking about the mission trips that are coming up for 2020. We took, I think, uh, half a dozen or so of us from this campus to Puerto Rico this past summer. It was a great experience. We had a couple of people went from here to Bolivia. And uh, there are some really cool opportunities and more uh, on the books that are coming. So keep your ears open for that. So let me just give you a couple of thoughts to try and wrap it up. And it's just three questions. Uh, well, it'll be four before I'm done. Related to these points, are you faithfully coming together to meet God, to, to connect to God in corporate worship? Are you faithfully investing yourself in corporate worship? They say that... Uh, uh, I just got to tell you... I just went into the red on my countdown clock. I don't think I've ever done that before, so that just means I'm talking too much. Um, corporate worship is just desperately, desperately important. I'm not going to say any more about it. You've got to be here. They say that if you take your Easter attendance, that's probably ballpark the people that would call your church home. We had 260 here, Easter. Uh, I would love to see you faithfully here. Secondly, are you in a small group? Get a small group book, put it together. If our small groups get overloaded, we'll start another small group or two, whatever we need to do. It's vitally important for you. Some of them will keep going. Some of them will just be for the next seven weeks. Get in a small group. It's really, really necessary. And where are you serving? And don't say, I serve in my day-to-day -day life. Where are you specifically committing yourself to say, this is how I'm serving the Lord? There are many opportunities here 
There are opportunities at our other campuses. There are places you can be and go, and we would love to get you connected to that. So those are your three questions. And then here's the last one I want to leave you with. What's your next step? Where are you in your process of becoming an authentic follower of Jesus Christ? Are you faithfully involved in church? Great. Get in a small group. Are you already in a small group? Where are you serving? How can you take another step to strengthen your commitment to being an authentic follower of Jesus Christ? It's super important. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, open the scriptures. I pray that even as we sing here in closing, uh, I pray that as we go from this place, you would have challenged us and reminded us of stuff that seems so really simple and basic, and yet it's the process that works, Lord. And I pray that you would uh, re-energize us as it relates to these things so that we would continue to grow as authentic followers of Christ. For I ask in Jesus' name, amen.